Okay, I'm back for a discussion of chapters 8 and 9 from H.L.A. Hart's Concept of Law. In these, he's doing something a little bit different than he did in the two foundational chapters that I discussed in the last two episodes. Uh, In this one, he's not attacking other positivists or distinguishing his theory of positivism from others. Instead, he's arguing for positivism and telling us why positivism gives a better account of law than do natural law theories or other theories that suggest that law and morality cannot be separated, that they are one and the same enterprise, or at least that you can't do law without taking account of morality. See, these theories say more than, you know, something like, uh, you know, law and morality are like chocolate and peanut butter. They go better together. They suggest that these two enterprises cannot be separated. Okay, let's see what Hart says. The basic outline of his argument is this. He first distinguishes between moral rules and legal rules. And then in chapter 9, he argues that the connection between moral rules and a legal system is contingent, meaning that there are often good reasons to put into our legal system as legal rules, rules which have their origin in morality, rules which are also moral rules. But that's just a contingent fact. We've chosen to do that, but we could have chosen to do something else. And this will lead Hart to conclude that legal systems that we might all agree are evil, say the Nazi legal system, are nonetheless legal systems, and their laws are nonetheless laws. And so, rather than be able to say that those laws are invalid because they aren't really laws, we have to grapple with what Hart thinks is the more difficult moral question and the more important one. Should we follow the law? Okay, let's see how we get there. Well, moral rules and legal rules are both kinds of rules, and in fact, Hart notes that they are both social rules of the kind that he has identified in the prior chapters. Moral rules are those primary rules of obligation that he talked about that are distinguished from, say, rules of etiquette and less serious rules by the fact that there's a lot of social pressure to conform and that they require some sacrifice. They ask for you to do things that you might not do if you were completely self-interested. All right, well, if they are primary rules of obligation, then why aren't they legal rules? What's the difference? Well, here we go back to Hart's theory. Remember Hart's theory about positivism? That, you know, what is a legal? How do you know whether something is the law? It's that there's a secondary rule, ultimately a chain of rules ending in the ultimate rule of recognition, that identifies that rule as a legal rule of the system. So a legal rule is one that is identified ultimately by the ultimate rule of recognition as a law within the system. Moral rules are not so identified. Okay? So they they both impose obligations, moral rules and legal rules. The difference, though, is that a legal rule is identified as such by the rule of recognition. So it may be a rule of morality that I should watch out for my mother's health and take good care of her. But you can't point, at least in our system, to a law which is recognized ultimately by a chain of secondary rules stemming from, let's say, the Constitution, if we're looking at the federal system, that imposes that obligation upon me. So although you may say one really ought to take care of one's mother, especially in a time of need, you can't point to any rule in the legal system which recognizes that duty as a rule of our legal system. All right, now that distinction between rules which are 
obligatory because they are recognized by a rule of recognition, and rules that are not so recognized but are considered by the community to be moral rules, that distinction turns out to be something more than just an arbitrary line that we drew. So here are four such differences that Hart gives. First, importance. So a moral rule gains force because it's important. You can, Hart says, demand more sacrifice from individuals if there's more at stake for society. A legal rule, though, is a rule until it's repealed, or another way of saying repealed is de-recognized, right? It's, it's, it is no longer recognized as a rule of the system. So regardless of its importance, something can still be the law. Now, we might predict that things that are important to us are likely to appear in the law, so rules that we think are important we're likely to put into the law, and rules which we may have in the law, legal rules, which are widely seen as unimportant or having lost importance, those are likely candidates for repeal. But that's a matter of prediction, not validity. If someone asks you whether it's the law to drive 55 miles per hour in a zone which is posted as being a 55 mile per hour zone, you don't say, well, let me think about whether I think that's still important or whether people generally think that that speed limit is still important. It is the law, and it is the law because it is recognized as such by a chain of secondary rules leading up to the ultimate rule of recognition. Okay, number two here, immunity from deliberate change. Legal rules can be changed easily and deliberately. Moral rules can't be changed by fiat. Here's the example. Beginning January the 1st, it will be illegal to drive on the right side of the road or, or uh, use a Segway on a sidewalk, I don't know, versus beginning January 1st, it will be immoral to. Like, that doesn't seem to make any sense at all, does it? The first, that beginning on January 1st, it will be illegal to do something, we can imagine quite easily. It's how law often works. And there's no contradiction in our sense of what law is to imagine such a thing. However, if we decide arbitrarily that something shall no longer be immoral, that doesn't seem to work at all. And so we see intuitively a difference between legal rules and moral rules in this way. Third, Hart notes that immorality requires some kind of voluntary act or inaction, whereas illegality, as a matter of logic, doesn't. There's often a mens rea requirement in the law. You know, you have to do an act but have an intention with respect to that act. But that's not necessary. We have strict liability torts and crimes. They exist. And there's no contradiction in their existence. Whereas the very idea of morality seems to refer to a mental state, a set of intentions. Your actions can be deemed immoral pretty much only if you voluntarily did them. It is a judgment of your intentions and your decisions. He notes that we oftentimes require some kind of mens rea, and that's an example of our moral sense becoming a reason for making laws of a particular kind. And he doesn't rule that out. Our law is shot through with morality. Our legal rules oftentimes reflect our moral intuitions, but they need not. That's his main point. They need not. More on that in a bit. Okay, finally look at how compliance with these two different kinds of rules, moral rules and legal rules, is encouraged or how deviation from them is discouraged. With respect to moral rules, Hart says, there is consistent and intense social pressure. It's not enough that something is against a moral rule 
and that there's a sanction. So with respect to social pressure, he says emphatic reminders of what the rules demand appeals to conscience and reliance on the operation of guilt and remorse are the characteristic and most prominent forms of pressure used for the support of social morality. Contrast that with legal rules where you can be found liable for something and yet you might not even be judged morally blameworthy or guilty. Just you got to pay. All right. So to summarize, legal rules and moral rules are different in that a moral rule need not be recognized by the rule of recognition. It need only be a social rule, a primary rule of obligation that is accepted from the internal point of view and thus provides grounds for criticism when people violate it. Okay, but it need not be a legal rule. Legal rules, by definition, are those which are picked out by the rule of recognition as valid laws under the system. And Hart tells us they can be less important in an absolute social sense. They can be deliberately changed. You know, beginning January 1st, the law will be. They can be imposed on conduct which is not voluntary, strict liability. And they can be supported by a different form of social pressure. This leads us into chapter 9, in which Hart argues that it is a huge mistake to mistake the use of moral rules in a legal system for a necessary connection between law and morality. Although, again, we often find rules of morality within our law, that's by choice. It may be a good idea, but law can be law, even if it doesn't follow rules of morality, and in fact, even if it contradicts rules of morality. Now, this is opposed to the idea that there are principles outside of the law against which the validity of the law can be judged. And these principles can be discovered through the exercise of human reason. And perhaps even they are religiously motivated, whatever. Maybe they're written in the fabric of the universe, wherever they come from. The point is that we don't make them but our law must conform to them. And for Hart, that's just nonsense. And here he relates criticisms others have made of this kind of idea of natural law as a kind of mistake. It's the, the, the word law is used in two different senses and that these are being confused by natural lawyers. The laws of the physical world, you know, is the observation of regularities of the happenings of the universe, we use the word law for that. We also use the word law for the prescriptive commands that we give to one another, the kinds of things that Hart's been talking about. Laws of the universe can't be broken and still be called laws. If we observe that something which is happening in the physical world doesn't comply with a quote-unquote law that we have devised, then we'd be hard-pressed to say that that law is still a law. If we see things no longer attracted to one another according to the rules of gravity, then whatever the law of gravitation we formulated, it must be wrong. Not so with the former. We can declare, again by fiat, that a law is no longer a law. We can also observe that people break the law all the time, and yet we still say it is the law. The problem here, of course, is that the word law is being used in two different ways, and we shouldn't confuse them conceptually. Now, there's another way of looking at this which doesn't quite make that mistake, but it assumes that Things in the universe have purposes, including us, that there are better states of things than others. So this is called a teleological theory. It's a theory that things in nature have a purpose, a point that we can discover. And the example Hart gives is that of the acorn, which, under one account, is somehow meant to become a tree rather than just a collection of crushed up matter. 
And the key here is that if you take a teleological approach, you make a normative judgment about the evolution of such things, meaning that you make a value judgment. Somehow a tree is a better endpoint for an acorn than a crushed up bunch of matter. Now, is this accurate? Is this a good way of looking at the world? Well, when it comes to nature, is it so clear that an acorn that becomes a tree is somehow better than an acorn which is crushed up and maybe eaten by squirrels or other critters? Well, if we apply this approach to humans, then this theory would say that there is some kind of optimal development, that we desire this development because it's good. This is a natural law of viewpoint. We don't just regularly consume food, for example, but we ought to consume food. So the idea is here we go from the descriptive, describing how people do in fact thrive, to an internal prescriptive judgment based on unstated assumptions about how we value different kind of end states. Now, is there some truth to this? Hart recognizes that there might be some truth to this. People very often do value, say, survival, right, over not surviving. But we don't need some kind of perfectionist teleological theory for this. As Hart says, we may hold it to be a mere contingent fact, which could be otherwise, that in general, people do desire to live, and that we may mean nothing more by calling survival a human goal or end than that people do desire it. Okay, if we assume that generally people want to survive, then we can use that assumption to predict the content that law is likely to have. Hart says that social arrangements to aid survival must, as a contingent matter as well, have certain features. There must be some minimum legal content, which Hart says, okay, you can call that natural law if you want, but of course it could be otherwise. And what's more, this kind of minimum legal content is a result of certain reasons, certain observations about human nature. And he gives a few of these. Let me just go over them really quickly. Uh, vulnerability, the fact that humans are vulnerable, leads to naturally to constraints on violence. That humans have a kind of approximate equality, meaning that we have to cooperate to ensure protection. Think about this. It's that, you know, e even kind of the burliest, biggest person is not maybe that much stronger than some weaker people. At least a few weaker people could overcome a big burly person, okay? So maybe unlike other kinds of critters, we don't show such dramatic variation in strength that one person could be basically invulnerable among a larger group. So this approximate equality has to be taken into account. And, and in fact, where this fails to hold, like in international law, we may see different basic legal structures. Okay, third, uh, we have a limited altruism a limited willingness to give of ourselves, which makes mutually enforceable forbearance necessary. We have limited resources that we need for survival, which leads naturally to some kind of property, some kind of legal regime for managing scarcity. We have limited understanding and willpower, meaning that we need some kind of coercion to keep us to our bargains. Now, note that all of these are contingent on human nature, facts about humans that could as well be otherwise. But given these facts, these basic legal features are natural necessities. But they aren't deduced from the concept of law. Okay, so the point is that when we make these observations about human nature and say that certain law has to be enacted to deal with these features, we are making a claim about the content of law 
based on those observations, those contingent facts that could be otherwise. We're not deriving that minimum legal content from the concept of law itself. And positivism, for Hart, can take account of practical necessity and contingent necessity. The law is what it is because we've decided to make it that way, not because there is something natural in the world or inevitable that forces it that way. For example, equality may be a moral value, but societies are really different and have differed in the classes of people deemed worthy of equal treatment. I want to ask you about something in our discussion, and I won't spend time with it now, but Hart makes a claim in here that in modern societies that have well-developed systems of secondary rules, oppression might actually be easier. What's he claiming there? What's, what's the idea? Think about that. Okay, so natural law attempts to measure legal systems against some kind of moral standards which stand apart from the law of the regime itself. So here are some ways it might do so. You might argue that power and authority, authority to make law, derives from the moral obligation to follow the law. And so absent some moral obligation to follow the law, there is no power and authority. But here's what Hart says. Not only may vast numbers be coerced by laws which they don't regard as morally binding, but it's not even true that those who do accept the system voluntarily must conceive of themselves as morally bound to do so, though the system will be most stable when they do so. In fact, their allegiance to the system may be based on many different considerations. And so, in fact, people follow law maybe quite often, not because they have a sense of moral obligation. They may be Holmesian bad men, and power and authority don't depend on everyone taking the internal point of view. Not only may power and authority derive from providing efficient coercion to keep a bunch of Holmesian bad men in check, but even people who accept the legal system from the internal point of view, they accept the laws of the system as guides for their conduct. Those people may not take the law as a guide because they see it as morally obligatory. They may see it only as legally obligatory. There may be other moral principles that they have which conflict. I may follow a law that I think is contrary to my morality because it is the law. In this way, Hart is really saying something about kind of different zones of obligation, that you have a zone of obligation within the legal system which may be different than your obligations within some other moral system. Do you agree with that? Do you think that's so? Would you comply with a law that you thought was immoral? At what point do you become a revolutionary? And at what point do you stay within the system? How do we think about these things? Secondly, Hart admits that morality influences the law and that to ignore moral principles in the making of law would be unstable in the sense that you, you would have a hard time maintaining order and authority if all of your laws were immoral. So law can indeed embed moral principles. We see them throughout our law. And law can even require that judges or others make moral judgments. The point, though, is that the legality of those judgments and the legality of law itself is judged by compliance with secondary rules and ultimately the rule of recognition, not by external moral principles. I think I'll end with Hart's main and most forceful, really moral point here. And he says that the positivist's main contention is that we should distinguish the criticism that something isn't law from the criticism that something while law, is too evil to be obeyed. He says these are really different questions, whether something is law and whether it is law so evil that we should disobey it. 
And here he cites these Nazi cases, uh, a Nazi grudge case. These are cases where informers selfishly procured arrest and imprisonment of others under some unjust Nazi laws. And, and the question is, can you prosecute these informers? The natural law answer, or a natural law answer, might be that the Nazi laws protecting the informers or even requiring them to inform are not law at all because of the immorality of the system and the immorality of those particular laws. And so the imprisonments of the people on whom they informed are unlawful. And in fact, the informants are liable for procuring that imprisonment. Now, this is a struggle between two rival conceptions of law. Obviously, Hart's whole theory is against the idea that something is not law only because it doesn't comply with certain moral principles. But further, he questions the practical advantage of denying legal status on moral grounds. He thinks it would be better, wiser, and clearer if we just get right to the real question, the morality of disobedience, the morality of disobeying the law. It only confuses things, he thinks, to argue about the metaphysical status of a law as law. Is this really law? Is it not? That's not the question for Hart. It's whether that law is so evil that I should violate it, that I should be disobedient. Here's what he says, and this is the key point on page 210. What surely is most needed in order to make men clear-sighted in confronting the official abuse of power is that they should preserve the sense that the certification of something as legally valid is not conclusive of the question of obedience, and that however great the aura of majesty or authority which the official system may have, its demands must in the end be submitted to a moral scrutiny. This sense that there is something outside the official system, by reference to which, in the last resort, the individual must solve his problems of obedience, is surely more likely to be kept alive among those who are accustomed to think that the rules of law may be iniquitous than among those who think that nothing iniquitous can anywhere have the status of law. All right, can you put that in your own words? I want to hear about it. Okay. Till then.